Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that you have spoken to us in your word, and that if your spirit is not among us, then we are wasting our time. So Lord, I ask that your spirit, he would be here, that as your word is declared, that he would be powerful in drawing us unto yourself, transforming lives and hearts and minds and families, Lord. That as we see the glories of Christ, we might be changed. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So last week, uh, we spent the time on the first couple verses of this, this great hymn about Christ. Uh, Colossians 1, 15-20. As I said then, it's believed to be an early Christian hymn or confession of the faith. This is who the church has believed from its foundation that Jesus Christ is. And as we spoke about again last week, that revolves around who this Jesus is and what he has done. And when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about uh, Jesus, there's always two aspects we must discover or talk about, and that is who is this Jesus and what has he done and why is it important. And there are sadly a lot of fake Jesuses out there. There are a lot of counterfeits that parade around like this is the Jesus you should believe in. This is the version of Jesus you should believe in. Uh, but there really is only one true Jesus. And it's a life or death question, uh, getting it right. And so last week we had a focus on Christ in creation. And that was broken down into two main categories. His identity in creation. He is the creator God, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That means he inherits all of creation. It's his status, his, his reign over it. And then his work. In him all things were made, through him all things were made, by him all things were made, and everything holds together in him, and everything exists for him. And those first verses give us that comprehensive, comprehensive picture of who Jesus is and what he has done in creation. He's the creator God. He made everything seen and unseen, everything physical and everything spiritual. Thus, he upholds everything. And to get the gospel right, we need to start with that identity of Jesus. In other words, the, the cults that have broken off of Christianity, whether they be Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism, or really, yes, even Islam, they are wrong because they get Christ wrong. They deny his eternal um, status as the creator God. And this reality that Christ is God and that everything exists by him and for him establishes for us the necessary foundation for this second section. Last week, we saw that he's the Lord of creation. This week, we will see that he is the Lord over salvation. Or to put it another way, he's the Lord over the new creation. You could phrase it either way. And so we have this comprehensive beginning of who Jesus is. And because Jesus made everything, because he holds everything together, and because he will inherit everything, he has an invested interest in everything. He has an invested interest in his creation. Because he's going to inherit it all and give it to his people. Therefore, he enters his creation to save it. To save it from sin. And it is here we, we must, absolutely must, confront our often very limited view of the gospel and Christ's work. So, if we're going to talk about the gospel, it really is those two categories we, we just talked about. Who Jesus is and what he has done. And these 
five, six verses here in Colossians 1 are a summary par excellence of what the gospel is. For too long, especially here in America, Christians have limited the gospel to only getting souls to heaven. We only want to talk about the fact that Christ died to save sinners. And in response to this, false teachers have latched onto this and denied that Christ died for sinners, and they want to make Christ's death about anything besides that. And to be clear, and I'm going to say this several times throughout this message, the gospel is never, never less than Christ dying as a, a sacrifice for sin. It can never be reduced to less than that. It never should be. To do that is to deny the gospel. But in dying for the sins of his people, that message entails everything. The chief problem in the universe is the sin of humanity. It is the major problem that must be dealt with. And so the gospel can never be less than Christ dying for sinners, but it is certainly more than that. Again, this isn't Pastor Levi. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The early church's confession of faith. Who is this Jesus and what has he done? So the gospel can never be less than the call for individuals to repent and believe of their own sins. Salvation always comes one person at a time. An individual repenting and believing. This means that salvation itself is not a social work. It is not a new program to feed the poor. It's not even societal renewal. But we would be ignorant and, and fools and denying scripture and church history if we denied that the gospel does, can, and has brought about societal renewal. The gospel calls individuals to repent. And as more individuals repent and believe, things change. Crazy how that works. And yet, due to the right desire to combat the social gospel, many in the conservative church have wrongly downplayed the cosmic, all-encompassing message of the gospel. I met a young man uh, this last week. He had a, a tattoo on his right forearm in Greek, and my Greek is a little, more than a little bit rusty. So I had to ask him, what does that say? And it says, he makes all things new. You find that at the end of the Bible in Revelation 20 and 21. He makes all things new. The gospel message is moving towards this renewal of everything, not just some things. And I think that's what we will, we will see in this section. It's laid out a lot like the first portion. In other words, these verses we can divide into to two main sections. And the first is the identity or the titles of Christ, just like in the, the first few verses. And the second is, what did he do? What did he do in the process of salvation? So, first verses, what is the identity of Christ in creation? What is his work in creation? Now this week, what is his identity in salvation or the new creation? And what is he doing in the process of salvation in the new creation? So let's start with his identity or his titles. Verses 18 through 19. You have your Bibles open? Uh, look at this again. You'll notice several titles given to Christ here. He is the head of the body. The church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we should note that these identities 
of Christ in the new creation flow from what we just are, the, the verses right before this, 15, 16, and 17. Those verses are the foundation. Christ is Lord over creation. Therefore, he is also all of these things. And there are three basic titles given to him here in salvation. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning or the firstborn of the dead. And he is God in the flesh. We're going to look at each one of these three as quickly as we can this morning. First, Christ is the head of the body. That is the church. Christ is supreme over everything in creation. He created all things. He holds all things together. Everything exists for him. And he is going to inherit everything. And this includes the church. The title head is not something we often use anymore uh, today. But it is here applied to Christ. That he is the head of the church. What does that mean? Well, most basically, it's, it's basically saying he is the head of state. If you were to talk about the president here or prime ministers in different countries, you would refer to them as the head of state. And to, so, to say that Christ is the head of the church means that he has the authority or the kingship, or in Paul's time, he is the emperor of the church. And this is, of course, a parallel to his being the head of all creation. He is the one who rules everything, especially the church. And this is good news for us. Why is this good news for you and me? Because the one who created everything, the one whose power is on display in holding the universe together, that person is the one who rules over us, who rules over the gathered church. And this picture of Christ ruling over the church is painted very vividly for us in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. You get this wondrous revelation of who Jesus is and all of these symbols, all of his glory and his power in chapter 1. And then the next couple chapters, there's these letters given to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And in it, there's this picture of Jesus walking among the lampstands of the seven churches, which the lampstands represent the church. And as he does so, he encourages the churches. He teaches them. He rebukes them. And he even threatens them. He says, you either do what I say, or, as the head of the church, I am going to remove you from the church. I'm going to take your lampstand, and I'm going to put out its light. You will no longer be one of my churches. He does this because, again, he is the head. He is the one who rules the church. And the applications here are rather straightforward. The authority of every church is Christ. And that authority is mediated to us by his spirit and by his word. Every church is to follow Christ by submitting to the word we have received. And Christ will judge every church, every denomination, and every and threatens all of us with the removal of the lampstand if we do not obey. It is any wonder that very cold, legalistic, and formalist churches die because they forget their first love, and Christ puts their candle out. Is it any wonder that worldly denominations that reject the clear teachings of Christ from everything from sexual ethics on down, die? Why do they die? Because Christ kills them. He says, you will not bear my name. I am the head of the church. This also means that no pastor, no pope, no denomination is the head of the church. That title belongs to Christ 
in Christ alone. Every authority structure within the church is but a servant of its true master. So this means quite clearly, Pastor Levi does not own Christ Bible Church. The elders do not own Christ Bible Church. Even the congregation, you do not own Christ Bible Church. Christ and Christ alone does. If Christ, as the universal Lord, is the head of the church, this also means something very important we cannot forget. This means that the state is not the head of the church. The state is not. And you and I need to hear this more than just because of what we've seen over the last several years where heads of state told the churches that we get to tell you when you get to worship, what you get to worship, how many of you get to worship. Besides that, that was only a problem because we've forgotten this for quite some time. And it's also something many of our Protestant forefathers uh, got wrong, or at least incomplete. Coming out of medieval Roman Catholicism, the church and the state were married in a very unhealthy way. And in that unhealthy way, uh, there were many abuses on both sides of the equation. And as the Protestant uh, forefathers resisted that and brought about renewal, uh, they still kept some level of influence of the state upon the church. Kings would make decrees. Nations would be run. Um, we still have vestiges of this in England. The queen, she is still technically, at least in name, the head of the state and the head of this church. She is both. And that is not the way it should be. People are not born physically into the church as they are born physically into a nation. And until recently, many European countries still collected taxes and had people born physically into the state church. It's something that our founding fathers in America sought to avoid. And this is what they meant when they said that, Christ, or that America is not a Christian nation. That America would never have a national church. Because there's a separation between the church and the state. Now that is a necessary thing and that comes from this reality that Christ is the head of the church, that the church operates in a slightly different sphere than the state does. But that separation today is now abused in a completely different direction. Separating the church from the state was meant to protect the church and believers from undue influence in the state. It was meant to limit the state's authority, not Christ's authority. Let me say that again. The separation of church and state is meant to limit the state's authority, not Christ's authority over the state. We saw that last week. He is the head. He is over all things, preeminent in everything. He even created all rulers, authorities, and dominions. His authority is absolute. But the church is, well, ours isn't. And in forgetting this, the church has often sought to replace its head, Christ, with Caesar. And that leads to untold problems over and over again. And you and I need to hear it today because many churches failed this lesson <laughs> over the last two years, and I don't think that it's a lesson that's just going to go away. We need to have this fixed firmly in our hearts. Christ is the head of the church, not the state. And if we don't get that right, Christ will remove our lampstand. Because he is the head. One final reminder here, with Christ being the head, this is the obvious imagery used throughout the New Testament that the church is his body. 
He is the head of the body, which is the church. And that means if you attack Christ's body, you are attacking Christ himself. This is his people. This is why throughout human history, whenever persecution comes, whenever the head of state tries to persecute the church, the church flourishes and the state flounders. Because you don't beat Jesus. He wins. Don't punch above your weight class. The second title given to Christ here is that he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. There's a clear parallel here between him being the firstborn of creation, we see in the opening verses, and here he is the firstborn of the dead. And Paul adds to that title this idea that he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. Where Christ was not temp or in, in time the first created thing in the opening verses, here he is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead. He is the beginning of the new creation, the resurrection as it were. There are strong creation themes here because the term beginning is used. If you, if you were to be able to read Greek, you would see that that word beginning is the same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Here there's a new beginning, a new creation being formed through Christ. That is, God is doing a new act of creation through the death and resurrection of his Son. And so Christ is the beginning of the new creation. It has literally broken into the world through his resurrection. So much so that he is the firstborn of creation. Again, rank and status. He is going to inherit the new creation and give it to his people. He is the firstborn of the dead. A promise and a guarantee of future resurrection and future new creation. Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all will die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. The fact that he is the firstborn from the dead is a seal and a guarantee that you who have faith will also be raised as he has been raised. Being the firstborn of both the old creation and the new creation means that Christ is preeminent or supreme over everything, past, present, and future. Paul wants us to see that Christ is overall, in all, and will inherit all. The third title given to Christ in the realm of salvation is that of God. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Just as in the creation section, there's a, there's a stress here on Christ being God. God even in the flesh. Paul wants it to be clear beyond an argument that Jesus Christ is eternally, always has been, and always will be God. And in this phrase, we see again a comprehensive foundation for the Christian faith. If Christ is not God, then there is no comprehensive salvation. If Christ is not God, then there is no salvation at all. The thing that drives our need for salvation is our sin. And that sin creates a separation between God and man. And man could never bridge that gap. 
So God had to do it himself. And in his divinity, as the creator and the savior, that is the basis that Christ is preeminent, that's a big fancy word for supreme or first or above everything. So when you say something or someone is preeminent, first and above everything, if that thing is not God himself, that's called idolatry. That's called blasphemy. Paul wants you to see that Christ is over everything precisely because he is God. And we'll touch on that a little bit more later. So just like last week's passage, we get this comprehensive identity of who Jesus is. He's the Lord and the creator of everything because he is God. And also he's the savior of everything because he is God. So what does he do? What is the work of Christ in salvation? Look at verse 20. So this, this Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We have two works here. Two things Jesus is doing in salvation and the means by which he does it. The first is Christ is reconciling to himself all things on earth and in heaven. Let me say that again so you don't miss it. Christ is reconciling to himself all things on earth and in heaven. So I can say with a high degree of confidence, the gospel is not just about saving souls. How can I say that? Because I just read it in verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself just souls to heaven. Well, sorry. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. The Christian faith is not about escaping creation to get to heaven. It is about heaven invading and coming to earth through the work of Christ. What is reconciliation? Reconciliation is taking two things that have been separated and bringing them back together. It is about restoring what has been lost. Before sin entered the world, God lived with man in the garden. His presence was there. He walked with man. He talked with man. The Garden of Eden, as I like to say it, was a blending of the spiritual and the physical in a way that you and I can't fully comprehend in the world as we know it. Garden of Eden was more truly physical than what we experience in the cursed world today, and it was also more spiritual as God lived with man. But in the fall, in response to humanity's sin, God ripped away his dwelling from the earth, he ripped heaven away from earth, and he set an angel outside the garden so that man could not be there anymore. And creation was subjected to futility, both physically and spiritually. But yet, again, when you flip to the end of the story, what you see is a reuniting of heaven and earth. The new Jerusalem comes out of the sky, and heaven and earth are rejoined together. The veil between spiritual and physical realities is removed. And what we have here is a picture of what Christ, the one who made everything, the one who upholds everything, and the one who inherits everything, we have a picture of what he is doing. God, Christ made everything, but does he abandon his creation because of sin? No. Does he just destroy his creation and say it's not worth saving? No. The gospel is that while we were still sinners, 
Christ came to us. He entered his creation, added to himself a human nature to die in our place. There is a comprehensive nature to Christ's work. It encompasses everything in heaven and everything on earth. It is not just a spiritual salvation. But at the heart of it is dealing with the sin of humanity. What then does Paul mean by all things? Christ is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to himself. What does that mean? Well, I keep using the word comprehensive uh, because if I use the word universal, you would think I mean that every person is saved. And the Bible is very clear. That's not the way it works. All here clearly is about categories. I say all things are being redeemed and reconciled to Christ. It means all types of things. Things in heaven, things on earth. It doesn't mean all people. It doesn't even mean all animals. It means all types of things are being saved and reconciled to God through the work of Christ. And so, the message of the gospel is very narrow. It can be summarized in lots of different ways. Christ, the eternal Son of God, died for sinners, rose again on the third day. He's the preeminent Lord over everything, and he says, repent and believe in me. That's the message. In summary, that is very narrow in scope. But that message changes everything. That's what Paul's getting at here. He is reconciling all things to himself. Or as Paul puts it again in Ephesians 1.10, He says this about God's plan of salvation. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, that's Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Christ is bringing them all together in Himself. Sin brought separation between God and His creation and now through Christ the two are being brought back together. The second work of Christ flows from the first. He brings peace. He brings peace. We all, at some level, want peace. We long for it. Whether it be that internal peace of mind or spirit, whether it be peace in the world, peace in our families, our schools, our communities, we want paradise. We want it restored. But this world is marked by death and chaos and strife, and the root of it all is sin. We all feel it, and we all wish it was different. And so sin brings with it death. The wages of sin is death. And so sin kills not only people, but it kills our relationships. It kills our churches. It kills our families. And it marks creation as broken and deformed. And all the cruelty and death we see in creation screams, there is no peace here. You can't get it. Nature is red in tooth and in claw. Paul says in Romans 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul says creation longs for it. It's as if it was groaning that it would be set free. That it has been subjected against its will to the bondage of sin and death. And how is that going to be removed? Interestingly enough, Paul doesn't say here 
the cross. He doesn't even say the resurrection. He says the revealing of the children of God, the sons of God. Why? Because creation was subjected to futility because the sons of God sinned. That's humanity. And once they are restored, creation itself will be liberated. And this is why scripture ends with that full picture of heaven and earth being made new. All things are being made new. Peace between God and man is restored. Peace with creation is restored. And we will dwell in his presence forever. So until then, we only get glimpses of it. Every time a sinner repents and believes, we see a glimpse of that peace restored. Every time a sin is forgiven, when a husband and wife turn back to one another, where they bear one another's burden, where the gospel is lived out, you get a glimpse of that beauty just whetting our appetites for more peace. And I want you to think on that carefully because we live in a day, in a moment in our society where we are literally losing our minds every single day. I mean, if, if I just look out for a moment in time with any shred of honesty as to what's going on, it would break my heart. Perversion is praised. Perversion is forced upon helpless children and called good. Chaos and discord are the norm. Where violence and exploitation are common, where evil appears undefeatable, we preach a Christ who brings peace. The peace we want. The peace we have programmed into our hearts. We preach a Christ who is Lord over everything. A Christ who died for everything. That's the foundation of this work. How is he reconciling to himself all things in heaven and earth? It says, by the blood of of his cross. By the blood of his cross, he is doing this. The target of the cross is the sin of humanity, and through the sin of humanity, all th- are being conquered, all things will be made new. The foundation of Christ's comprehensive work is that he is God and that he died for his own creation. And let me make this clear. Christ will get everything he died for. Christ will receive everything for which he shed his blood. And then it says he will give that to you. So I've told my children this before. This earth, all of it, is your inheritance. If you come to God by Christ through faith. For he is making all things new by the power of his blood. Let's make, some, uh, let's make some implications here, some applications. First, do not cage the scope of the gospel. Do not limit it where the Bible does not. Also, don't expand it where the Bible does not. It is not a social program. It is not a set of policies. It is Christ's identity and his work. But that changes everything because he's the Lord over everything. You cannot live this life in Christ's world that he made and that he died for and say that there are areas in life in which Christ is not Lord or in which he is not preeminent. Too many pastors have done so. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what Christ has done. The gospel cannot be reduced to just sinners being saved, but it must never be less than that. Reconciliation and transformation happen 
as Christ's lordship is preached and individuals repent and believe of their sins and are saved. Don't limit the gospel. Second, to revisit last week's application, that all of life has meaning, I said last week, because Christ created it all and everything exists for him. This passage gives you another reason why all of your life matters, because Christ died for it all. Christ died to reconcile all the spheres of life to himself and to his lordship. This means that we need good, mature Christians in every sphere of life who recognize that Christ is Lord, yes, even here. And that Christ died for it and is redeeming it. We must redeem knowledge. We must redeem relationships, the arts, the sciences, nations, communities, and policies, all for the glory of Christ because all of it is his. All of it matters because he bled for it. Third, in that vein, there is a cosmic war for every inch in this world. You're witnessing it more now. It's more blatant now than it was 30, 40 years ago, but it was still there 30, 40 years ago. But there is a cosmic war for everything in this life. Wherever you find someone saying Christ is not relevant here, that is exactly where he is relevant. That is exactly where the battle is raging. Christ's work is done in one sense, is that he has the authority over everything, but it is not yet fully realized throughout all of creation. So the Great Commission says, go out into all the world saying, this Christ is Lord. This Christ died. This Christ rose again. And that means that you and I are stuck in a time of conflict where the forces of darkness hate the light, where they want us to be quiet, where they want us to forget that Jesus Christ is already victorious and there's nothing they can do about it. Remember, you are at war. The job for us is to live and declare this passage, that Christ is the eternal God, the incarnated Son of God, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, the risen Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father and who said he is coming back to make all things new. That's our message. Finally, last, find comfort, find strength in these truths and praise and glorify this Jesus. Last week in the introduction, I talked a lot about the different false versions of Jesus. When we praise and worship Jesus, think on Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If you want a short, succinct summary of who Jesus is and what he has done, you have been given it in these six verses. You have been given who Jesus is. That Christ has made it all and he has died for it all. So keep that big view of Christ central to your heart and mind and find comfort in it. Find strength in it in it and praise and glorify him for this world is his praise this christ in all of your life for christ is all he is in all and he is reconciling all to himself to him be all glory honor and praise let's pray lord god we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word And that in your word we see the glorious revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask, as you have commanded us to ask, that your kingdom would come to this earth. That your will would be done here as it is in heaven. And that Christ's Bible Church, as just one manifestation of a glimpse of that kingdom, 
would be your tool to declare it, to see it expand, to see sinners reconciled to their God and to bring the message of Christ to all the world. Lord, hasten the day when our faith becomes sight. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.